0: Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name-Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 19 back. Once we had come to terms with Star Wars, the dud that we had shot into the atmosphere, Rue and I began sharing a slight sense of doubt. We believed we had good music and great ideas, but would that be enough to weather the storm of the failing music industry? Everything we had read and heard about record sales had finally hit home, and we too knew what it felt like to lose a ton of money on a release that we had poured our hearts and souls into. Though we took some mental time off to lick our wounds, we couldn't let this deter us from our dreams. Besides, Neither of us had anything to fall back on other than somewhat meaningless college degrees. With all the work and energy dedicated to my music, I was lonely by choice in those days. But I did suffer the consequences of having no one to rub my shoulders and make me feel better about the Star Wars fiasco or any setback. I dated as much as my patience for the chase allowed, but always wound up annoyed by any woman I'd come in contact with. I had already convinced myself that I'd stay single at least until I had an established music career. So there was no way I was going to get involved in an exclusive relationship with a young lady whose deal-breaking qualities were apparent to me early on. Mostly, I spent weekends alone in my apartment eating Papa John's and watching TV as if there were a cash prize offered for the most consecutive hours consumed. It was the closest I came to a vacation since Rue and I had left Miami. At work, the New York City rental market had become oversaturated with people that were doing the same thing as I was. And because we were only as good as our company's listings, customers searching for an apartment showed zero loyalty regardless of how nice or unbroker-like we were. All of that meant that I was essentially working for free and barely making enough money to survive. But one day in particular, my job as a broker in that office finally made sense. Hey. I just toured some guy who works at Sony Records. You ever heard of KP? A young agent said to me in passing. Everyone in the building knew that I was trying to be a rapper, and those I was friendly with would let me know any time they came in contact with a potential connection. It happened every now and again because of the size of the company we worked for. KP? Like, DKP? Hell yeah, I know who he is, I replied. Well, I'm showing him more apartments tomorrow afternoon, so bring me a CD and I'll give it to him. My mind went into a frenzy. All I had these days was hope that an opportunity like this would be the one I'd write about one day in my memoir, so I treated them accordingly. Hold on, we have to be a little bit craftier than that. Let me think about this for a second and I'll let you know tomorrow. That day I left work a little bit early to arrive back home at the same time as Rue. Listen, I told him, tomorrow my homegirl at work is gonna be with KP from Sony all day and she told me she'd give him a CD or whatever, but we have to strategize this, I said without taking a single breath. Holy shit, KP! He signed T.I., Rue said, and now he was the senior VP of A&R at Sony. We had to figure out how to do this the right way. Rue and I spent the rest of the evening and into the night discussing what to tell this young girl to say to KP without it sounding planned. We figured out a surefire way to instruct her to do exactly as we said without having to memorize a script. That night I could barely sleep. The Matrix Code was back and on the highest setting as the thoughts in my mind went around and around like 5,000 ornery bumblebees trapped inside a small glass box. The next morning I woke up early and made sure I got to work before my young friend left to meet KP at his office in Midtown. Finally around 11am she strolled into work. Listen, here's what we're gonna do, I told her. You're going to say, where do you work again? And he's going to say, Sony. And you're going to say, oh yeah, I have a friend who's a rapper who's doing a lot of big things. You should meet with him. Then you get his number and we'll handle the rest. You got it? Uh, so I say, so I tell him he should call you? The girl said, confused. No, you say that he should meet me and get his number, I told her. She said she understood. A few hours later, she left to meet him and I awaited word that the eagle had landed. Eventually, she texted me. Hey, I'm in the cab with KP. What should I say again? I knew that my overly strategized plan would need to be reiterated over and over until she knew it like her social security number. So now I was forced to play Cyrano de Bergerac over SMS. I began rattling off thoughts to her as if I was possessed. As each of the two-page text messages left my PDA and arrived onto her small, non-QWERTY flip phone, I knew that she couldn't possibly be making sense of any of what I was saying. I wasn't even sure she was receiving them in sequence, but I didn't care. I typed and typed until all of my overly planned thoughts were out, ending the entire session with a, you get all that? Eventually, somehow, she replied that she had, in fact, gotten his blessing to pass his office number to ruin me, probably thinking that his gatekeeper of an assistant would never let us through. He probably knew that he'd be certainly out of town or in a meeting as many times as it took for these little pests to give up trying that's because he didn't know who he was dealing with the next day rue started with a flurry of phone calls the first few were stereotypical at best uh kp is in a meeting is there a message but that didn't last long by the third consecutive day of trying rue had all but made friends with kp's young assistant often joking with him on the phone come on now brother don't tell me he's in a meeting before he's even at breakfast and then on the eighth business day kp answered the phone After a short yet friendly conversation, he agreed to let Rue send our latest project. Rue had our press kit messengered to KP's office because that was the industry-like thing to do. It included my 8x10, Bio, Volume 2.1 in Star Wars. After a few days to let the music marinate, Rue began the next wave of telephone attacks until KP finally answered. "'Did you get the package?' Rue asked. "'Yeah, I got it,' KP replied, sounding almost lifeless. "'So what'd you think?' I can't do nothing with this Rue didn't understand Did you listen to both CDs? Nah, I'm not really into mixtapes KP replied without a care So you didn't even hear the music? Rue said Nah, but this ain't for me I don't get it Rue replied I'm saying, bruh After Eminem I can't do nothing with a white boy Ain't nobody trying to hear that Yeah, but you haven't even listened to it I promise you won't be able to front on his talent He's a star regardless of his race Rue assured him Maybe so, but this just ain't my thing Can I at least send you some original songs So you can see that I'm not lying? Yeah, you can send them Listen, Rue then said Giving it one last shot at selling KP on my music I know you're a busy man There's no way I would waste your time If I didn't think it was worth it I promise you I'll get the originals over to you tomorrow And you'll love it KP agreed to give the CD a listen And Rue made good on his promise To once again messenger it over to his office the next day but though it did arrive safely, that would be the last time Rue ever spoke with KP. Unlike other letdowns, this didn't feel like a major setback. Sony was never one of the main targets during our in-depth conversations about where I belonged. KP was an opportunity that fell into our lap, so he pounced on it, and if nothing else it was good practice for Rue. We knew he'd be speaking to lots of ANRs in the coming months, and this was like a warm-up drill. Sony was never known for their rap department and we didn't want all of our hard work to land us on a major label that would never invest the proper effort into promoting our music. We also realized that KP, who once had his own label, was only interested in artists that he could sign to his imprint under Sony. In many ways, it was what we hated about how the industry was evolving, especially in hip hop. The imprint game was the biggest jack move of all for label executives who maybe lost a little of the juice they once had when majors were stronger. They'd go to work for the big guys with the caveat that the job came with an imprint for them. They'd sign artists and even if the artist didn't succeed, the exec would still guarantee themselves part of their album budget. Some would take it a step further and have the artist's entire album produced by one of the many producers that the exec already had signed to his production company. That way his hand was in more than one pot. The whole thing was common and KP had fallen right in line with the gag. He said he couldn't do anything with a white boy in 2005 before he ever heard my music. Fast forward five years and his marquee artist was Yellow Wolf, a long-haired white skateboarder from Alabama. I happen to think Yellow Wolf was a great rapper, but his career never really took off under KP's guidance. I guess KP was right. He couldn't do nothing with a white boy. always looking for the next angle i realized that moscow's less successful yet moderately well known bob deep project had been released worldwide by av8 records best known for their fat man scoop club records oh, bill, bill, got... av8 had become a somewhat successful independent record label in new york city between the Fat Man Scoop Records and the ski-produced, sporty thief song No Pigeons, a male reply to TLC's No Scrubs, AV8 was a quiet force in urban music. It occurred to me one day that John may know people at AV8. I called John to inquire. Man, fuck AV8. I hate those morons, he said. I don't care about that, man. Do you still know anyone there? I asked. Yeah, John said. I know the A&R there. He's a dick. I don't care if he's a dick. Rue's a dick. He knows how to talk to these assholes. Can you get us a meeting? What would you ever want to do with AV8? They're a piece of shit indie label that's gonna fuck you over for your money. What I had in mind wasn't about money. I wanted to bring them my back record. It felt like it was right up their alley and the original was less than a year old. I thought it had some life left in it and I needed to see if it did. Yeah, I'm sure they'll like it, but I guarantee that they're gonna fuck you. Look, all I want is for my name to get out there, I insisted. I totally ripped off the song, the beat, and Gwen Stefani's voice, so how could I possibly expect to make money anyway? I'm not trying to go to jail for copyright infringement, so if they're willing to take that on, then great. At least people will hear my voice. Okay, I'll call them for you, but don't say I didn't tell you so when you get screwed. I went home that night and told Rue my idea. He agreed that it was worth a shot and that anything in the name of getting the music out there was a good idea. John let me know that Brian, the Aviate a and said he would take a meeting with us the following week. I assumed John would go with us, but he registered his resistance before I could even ask. I got you guys the meeting, but if I see that fat motherfucker face to face, I'm going to beat his ass and wreck the office until he gives me my fucking money. Needless to say, we left John at home. When we arrived at the office on 9th Avenue, we were ready for action. I can't speak for Ru, but I don't think either of us was the least bit nervous. It was such a perfect record for AV8 that it seemed inevitable that he'd give us a single deal. The label lived on records like mine, and the Gwen Stefani version was not just a rap song, but a full-fledged pop record that I'd given a hip-hop sensibility. How could they not love it? After a short wait in a small office, Brian came in casually to greet us and sat down. So, John tells me y'all got a hot record I might be interested in, he said to us nicely. Yeah, no doubt, Bruce said. You want to hear it? It's perfect for what y'all do. We played him our version of Holla Back, and as we listened, it felt right. I mean, everything felt right. The meeting, the day, even the weather. Something about this just felt perfect and effortless before the song ended abruptly with the last few notes of the trumpet. Um, I love it. So what y'all want to do? Brian said nonchalantly. I was so taken aback that I couldn't believe my ears. That's how it works? I thought to myself. Just like that? You play one song one time and he loves it, and then ask you what you want to do? Is this for real?" I figured Rue was as stunned as I was that this had gone so smoothly. He was silent until he started trying to make sense of his thoughts out loud, but I took the reins. "'I think we should get this out,' I said." Brian agreed, sounding like there was never a question in his mind. "'Y'all got a B-side?' he asked. I need something in the same vein. For the first time, Rue and I gave each other a look we had never exchanged. Brian wanted more rap remakes. We had 30 of them in our iPod, so we knew we were about to experience what success felt like for the first time. It was as if we had prepared for this meeting all along, and now we couldn't lose. Yeah, I said laughing confidently. I got a whole CD full of B-sides. Press number six. I don't know why, but my first inclination was to plan my version of Big Daddy Kane's Warm It Up Kane, aptly titled Warm It Up Name. Our new biggest fan nodded along to the revamped old-school classic, and we knew I had hit a hole-in-one. Perfect, he said, the word of the day. Let's do it. We knew that we'd accomplished something big, and though we never discussed it, I'm certain it was at that moment when the notion of letting them keep all the money went out the window. Av8's releases were known to be distributed worldwide, and the possibilities were unlimited. We celebrated with a bottle of Hennessy in red Solo cups and listened to a bunch of my music while sitting on the green couch in Rue's living room which always played host to our Think Tank sessions. Brian agreed to let us put our JJL logo on the record's label. I figured that would be easy after noticing John's logo on Bob D. We couldn't find the original recording files for either of the two songs, so we went back into the studio to record both of them. We also made sure to create clean versions of both in case either made its way to radio. Aviate sent us a contract that was not even a page long, so we felt it was pointless to pay a lawyer to tell us that everything was kosher. We faxed the short documents of my brother David, who had seen a contract or two in his day. After reading it, he gave us the go-ahead to sign it. So we did. I don't remember the details, only that David referred to it as a standard P&D deal. This meant that Aviate would pay for the manufacturing and distribution of the record, but would not spend anything on marketing. We would get a percentage of sales, but before we saw a cent of it, we had to use our portion to pay the label back to recoup the money they spent on manufacturing and distribution costs. Once we recouped, yeah right, then we'd start receiving checks, winky face. We figured the record would be a smash because the original was so huge. The largest Fat Man Scoop record was a reworking of Faith Evans' Love Like This and it was playing in every hip hop club in America every night. So why not holla Girl? I did find it odd that Aviate never discussed the fact that, like their other records, we'd be violating copyright infringement laws. I didn't understand how they made money using other people's songs without permission. There's no way they would have contacted these artists to license the song because that would have cost millions. With their office address on every piece of product that they put out, how could they not be inundated with cease and desist letters? Maybe that should have been a red flag. Maybe I shouldn't have given a shit. Not that I actually gave a shit, but it was bizarre nonetheless. Once the record was out, we got the okay from Brian's assistant that we could come by to pick up a few boxes so we could service some DJs that we knew. Except for four physical copies that we kept for ourselves as mementos, we sent records out to every DJ we knew and BDS the record in preparation for the rainstorm of spins we were about to receive. Sadly, that never happened. Checking BDS Spins is a privilege reserved for people who work for record labels who have paid BDS accounts. Though it may very well have received a few coveted spins, we realized that, because we were using the same instrumental that was encoded by Gwen Stefani's record label, there would never be a unique code for our version. Once we got over the idea of potentially getting thousands of unaccounted spins, we could only hope that BDS wouldn't report us to the powers that be. As far as we knew, they never did. As for the record, AVA did exactly what they said and sent Hollaback Girl out to all of its worldwide accounts. After a few weeks, I decided to Google what's-his-name Hollaback just to see if anything popped up. Much to my surprise, I found a few U.S. listings. At least it was something. A week and a half later, there were three pages of search results. Two weeks after that, my mind blew when I found about 500 results. And I nearly fell out of my chair when I noticed the sites that were carrying the record ended in .pl, .de, .it, .cz, .ru, .no, .kr, .dk, .uk, .fr, .ca, .jp, and .es. And to you cultureless folk living under a rock, that's how websites in other countries end. I saw descriptions of the single in languages I didn't speak and characters I couldn't recognize. We didn't know how big the song was, but we knew that the record was in a lot of places, and that alone was satisfying. We couldn't have accomplished that on our own. We had no actual proof of revenue being generated from all of these listings, but we knew there had to be some. Rue and I decided that we'd wait a few more weeks before going to the label and discussing our payout. Perhaps they'd break us off a small taste, even if it was just a little lunch money. Rue gave Brian a call but he'd become curiously unreachable Rue left a message and then he left two Then five Then seven And then he stopped calling That made him furious Fuck this man, we're going up there I'm gonna fuck this motherfucker up Rue screamed as he let himself into my apartment I was calmer, but I agreed He doesn't know who he's fucking with I'll run up in that bitch with a fucking baseball bat And fuck everything up I know, man. I feel the same way, but you know we'd never get away with that. They'd never even let us up into the office now. Well, I'm leaving messages until this asshole picks up. I fucking call him every 30 minutes. Rue had a temper, but his unwavering determination made up for it in spades. For the next week, Rue called our AR two times an hour for three days until he finally picked up the phone. Hey, what's up, Rue, he said, as if he hadn't received 20 voicemail plus 30 messages from his assistant. What's up is that you've been dodging my calls, and I don't like that shit, Rue replied abruptly. Brian insisted that he was just busy with meetings. Yo, our record is in every goddamn country on Earth, and ain't no way y'all ain't moving coppers. Oh, really, Brian said, sounding like he had no idea. Let me check my numbers. Rue heard a scuffling of papers and a few slow keystrokes on a keyboard until Brian decided to speak again. Um, we've sent them out, but we haven't gotten any numbers back. You gonna sit here and expect me to believe that after three months y'all ain't made no money on this record? Is it a hundred stores all over the world. Fuck out of here with that bullshit, Rue yelled. His intensity was heating up and the veins in his neck and forehead became visible. Hey man, no need to get hostile. I got no reason to lie, Brian said, sounding guilty as charged. Listen, you better figure out your numbers and cut us a check or I promise you're not gonna want to see me again. Laughing nervously, Brian simply said, Nah, man, we'll straighten it out. Alas, that would be the last conversation either of us would have with any employee of Aviate Records. Though we don't have any data, sales figures, or proof of purchases, Hollaback Girl by What's-His-Name still yields hundreds of search results on Google. I have to believe that, just as John Moskowitz had predicted, Rue and I got screwed. No money, no fame, no fortune. No radio interviews, no magazine write-ups, no VIP treatment in restaurants or clubs, no offers to perform. Other than the expansion of my search results and the two 12-inch singles that sit framed in my basement, this great idea that spread worldwide had yielded nothing. Rue tried time and time again to get in touch with Brian over the next year just for the sake of closure, but he never did holla back.